Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 10 through 16 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 through 16. The main idea of this passage is the depravity of false teachers. What we're going to get in this passage is a portrait of the character of a false teacher. And so, in other words, what we're going to get is a peek into their heart and into their soul in order to see their depravity. And of course, the point that Peter is making here is that it is vital to our growth in the Christian faith that we think about the depravity of false teachers. And the reason that this is so vital for us is two. And the first reason that Peter has in mind in the context and his flow of thought here in the, in the book is that it will keep us from being surprised when we find such people coming up even within our own midst. When we find false teachers and find, find false brothers at work in our church or one of our sister churches or in one of the churches in our culture, it will keep us from being surprised by this fact There are such a thing as false teachers, and they are wickedly depraved. But the main reason that I think that Peter has in mind here is to remind us of who we really are apart from grace. And that's going to be my main purpose in the sermon today, is as we look at these false teachers and we look at their depravity, as we take a look into a portrait of their soul, It's like looking into a mirror of horrors. Have you ever looked at a mirror of horrors at a a festival or a fair or something? It presents a twisted or a distorted view of oneself. But in our case, what we're going to see as we look at the portrait of a false teacher is who we are apart from grace and what we really are capable of apart from grace. And if God were to remove His hand of grace, what we would be capable of in the church of God And so in looking at these false teachers, we're peering into the mirror of our own depravity. And we're seeing the wickedness of our own soul. The point that Peter has here is not for us to point fingers at guys out there, but to point fingers to ourselves, to, to look within our own self and to see something of the depravity that is there, the sin that still remains within us, the sin that wars against us. We get this portrait this picture of what we would be like as Christians if we did not have the Spirit of Christ. We get a reminder of who we are apart from Christ. And so Peter's point here in the passage that we have is the depravity of false teachers. And we could summarize it like this. They are paragons of depravity. They are perfect examples of the wickedness and the sin that dwells in the heart of man. And he's going to summarize this depravity under three broad headings. A false teacher's depravity is seen in their rebelliousness, their pleasure-seeking, and their greed. Now, if I couldn't describe the human soul any better than that, well, I can't describe it any better than that. That's the best description we can get. If you just wanted to boil it all down, what it means to depraved. We're rebellious. We despise authority. We're pleasure-seekers. And we are greedy. So let's take a a look at the text. Let's read what Peter writes here. And then we'll spend some time this morning breaking it open and thinking about it and examining it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 10, but you have to remember that Peter's actually finishing a thought that he had in just the previous section. Last week we looked at the condemnation of false teachers. 
This week we're looking at their depravity. So here's what he begins with in verse 10. He says, he says, the Lord knows how to condemn the false teachers, but here's where he picks up in verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous, a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now again, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that we look at this caricature of a false teacher, this portrait of a false teacher to see something this morning of ourselves of who we are apart from God's grace, of what we are capable of in the church and the kind of harm that we can bring to the church if the Lord were to remove His hand of grace. And so in looking at these false teachers, we see something of ourselves. You have to remember that one of the points that Peter is making here in chapter 2 is that we have to be careful about false teachers for the very fact that we are so easily enticed by them. And one of the reasons we are so easily enticed by them is because of the sin that still dwells in our hearts. Because these kind of characters are attractive to the sinful flesh. And this exposes us. And this is what we want to look at today. So we can break this passage up very simply. In verse 10 through 14, the sins of the false teachers, this caricature, this portrait of a false teacher and his depravity. In verse 15 through 16, the living example of Balaam. It sort of gives us a picture or an illustration of this depravity. And then we will briefly close at the end with some application. So let's look at verse 10 through 14, the sins of the false teachers. Peter breaks down their sins into three categories, rebelliousness, pleasure-seeking, and greed. Peter has already mentioned these three categories previously in verse 1, 2, and 3. If you'll look back up at verse 1, 2, and 3, he says this, "...but false prophets arose among the people." Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That's a picture of rebelliousness, a despising of authority, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. There's their love for pleasure. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Rebelliousness, pleasure-seeking, and greed. Now, Peter's going to break these open for us. He's going to get into some details here in the text that's in front of us. 
And so in verse 10 through 11, we see the rebelliousness of the false teachers. We could summarize what Peter is saying here is they oppose and they despise authority. And again, we see ourselves as, as soon as we hear those words. By the help of the Holy Spirit, we become convinced because we know that this is who we are. This is who we are apart from God's grace. This is who we are by nature. Opponents of authority. Despisers of authority. We come into the world this way. This is why children have to be trained and disciplined. But the language that Peter uses here is very helpful for us. And we want to look at it. Look again at verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Let's focus our attention on these two words, bold and willful. Bold carries the idea of arrogant. It carries the idea of someone who is self-satisfied, self-assured, self-confident. The false teacher is self-assured and self-confident to the point that he speaks about things that he has no knowledge of, as if he had knowledge of them. He's arrogant. This is rooted in his own arrogance. He is what you might call self-autonomous. He's his own authority. And he's very bold in this. He's very self-assured. It's from the root of this self-assurance and self-love and self-confidence. Self-satisfaction that this boldness arises in his heart and in his life. Maybe you've seen this behavior in someone. Maybe you've had experience with someone like this in your life. Someone who's bold, who speaks about things that they don't know as if they knew them. Maybe you have experience with this in yourself. And you've done something similar in your own life. Paul, in speaking about this same concept of boldness, self-autonomy, self-assertion, self-confidence, self-satisfaction. He says in Colossians 2.18, warning the Colossian church against false teachers, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now this is just an example to us of this boldness, this ability that these false teachers have to speak boldly about things that they have no real knowledge of. Going on and on about angels. Going on and on about visions. Going on and on about their own dreams and their own imaginations. Puffed up without reason. Which isn't to say that they don't sound reasonable or plausible. But to say that what they're speaking, doesn't, it's not rooted in anything real. It's not rooted in truth. But they are puffed up and they go on and they go on. They go on in detail. Because they are bold. Because they are self-satisfied, self-assured, self-confident. Because they love themselves and their own imagination. They are arrogant. 1 Timothy 1, 6-7. This is what Paul says. He says, certain persons... By swerving from a good conscience and a pure heart and a sincere faith, which is what we preach to you, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They speak without knowledge. They speak confidently. They speak boldly. But they speak arrogantly. They do not ultimately understand what it is they are talking about. 
1 Timothy 6, 3-4, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, and that's how you'll spot a false teacher, teaching that does not accord with godliness. But here's what he says, He is puffed up with conceit. He's puffed up, he's arrogant, he's bold. He's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicion. There is a boldness here. There's a willfulness, he says. Peter says, willful carries the, the idea of somebody who is audacious, someone who is offensively bold. Uh, the, the, the picture that, the idea that he's communicating here is stubbornness. Like a child who does something precisely because they were told not to do it. And does it confidently and does it boldly and does it in a self-asserted kind of way. The practical idea here though that Peter's getting at is this person is willful. They are unteachable. They cannot hear rebuke. They cannot be corrected. They persist in their own way. They have their own views and their own understandings and they cannot hear the wisdom of those around them or of godly men or of teachers. They are willful, therefore they are unteachable. Again, we could look at Colossians 2.18. They insist on asceticism and the worship of angels. That's, they insist in the face of the teaching of the apostles. They insist in the face of the teaching of more godly men. They are insistent. They are willful. Paul says in another place in the New Testament, they exalt themselves against the truth. They are willful. They dig their heels in. John, the Apostle John in 3 John verse 9 speaks of diatrophies, which is one of those examples we have in the New Testament of a false teacher. And I always smile a little bit because doesn't his very name sounds sinister to me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Diatrophies. That sounds like a false teacher, does it? Well, they're not so obvious to us all the time. But here he speaks of diatrophies. He likes to put himself first. He likes the preeminence, one translation says. And he does not acknowledge our authority. He is self-autonomous. He is self-authority. He answers only to himself. Again, what we're seeing here is not just a picture of false teachers, but of human depravity. A paragon of human depravity. A perfect model of human depravity. Something that really gets to the heart of what our sin really is and what it looks like as it's at work within us. We could summarize these false teachers like this. They're bold and they're willful. We could, say it, we could say it like this. When it comes to doctrine, they say what they say because they thought of it. They're their own source. And they say it like they mean it, so it convinces many. And when they're confronted, they double down on it. They are bold. They are willful. They are arrogant. They are unteachable. They are not humble. They are not Christ-like. They are not gracious. They oppose authority. They stand against it. Just in their very character. And the way it plays out in their life. They are opponents of authority. And of course, brothers and sisters, this gives us a picture of who we are apart from grace. This exposes the depravity that's in our own hearts. This exposes the sin that still remains in us. That still wars against us. 
It's not just out there in the false teachers. It's in here in the soul. So they oppose authority. But Peter goes on in the rest of verse 10. They don't just oppose authority. They despise authority. Look at the rest of verse 10. Bold and willful. About the middle of verse 10. He says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, this passage is very interesting, and the language that Peter is using here is very interesting. There's lots of ways to interpret this passage. How you interpret. The question is, is what does he mean by glorious ones? I'm willing to bet most of you in the room are just assuming he means angels, or he means demonic forces, the glorious ones, especially because of what he says in verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, And if you're familiar with the book of Jude, you might be thinking of angels, these glorious ones, as angelic beings, or even demonic forces. But how we interpret this phrase, glorious ones, really depends upon where we are in church history. And I think this is helpful and important because the point is is that I I don't think Peter has in mind anything specific when he mentions glorious ones. What he means is, is any kind of authority. Now, as modern-day Americans, we don't typically think of authority this way. We're... We live in a country by the people and for the people. We live in a country of independence. We live in a country in which we live life our own way, and this is sort of the ethic of our culture and of our society. But Peter here calls this term glorious ones to sit in the place of anyone who has authority, any position of authority. And it's interesting to see how the church has dealt with this throughout church history and made various applications depending upon where they were on the timeline of church history, so that if you were in the early church, the glorious ones meant pastors of churches. It meant ecclesiastical authorities. It meant pastors and deacons. That's who a glorious one was, and that's what Peter is warning us about here. If 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 you're living in the time of the Reformation or the time of the Puritans, the middle of the timeline from our perspective in church history, in the Reformation, the glorious ones were those in civil authority, those who sit in seats of government, mayors and sheriffs and and kings and judges, civil authorities. And in the modern church, we tend to uh, interpret this, as I've already said, as angels, angelic beings, which the Bible calls principalities and powers and authorities in that sense, because they're spiritual beings who have more power than we do and who have realms of authority that God has granted them. But all of these are helpful to us because the idea that Peter is communicating then is authority in general. And the point is, is that these false teachers despise authority wherever they find it. They don't count it as glorious. A false teacher would teach a a message that those who hold authority aren't glorious ones. That's saying too much. A false teacher would say they're no different than the rest of us. But the Bible consistently teaches us to respect authority. Not necessarily for the person who holds that authority, although many times that's the case, but for the seat itself. Just for the the idea of authority itself is exalted to us in the Scriptures. And so these false teachers, part of their sinister, evil, wicked, depraved character is they do not tremble as they blaspheme glorious ones. They do not tremble as they belittle. To blaspheme means to belittle or to talk down or to despise or to insult 
or to count little of and to, and to disregard. They blaspheme their pastors or pastors in general or any kind of church authority. They do not tremble as they blaspheme and speak down on and belittle civil governing authorities. They do not tremble as they blaspheme about matters they do not understand, speaking about the spiritual world and the dominions and the powers and the authorities that God has placed, both of the good angels and of the bad angels. They have no respect for authority. Some people in church history have defined this term glorious ones as referring to the doctrines of the faith. Our creeds, our confessions, the faith that's communicated to us and preached to us from the Word of God comes with power, it comes with authority. And so many have interpreted this passage to refer to our faith, the glorious ones, or the glorious doctrine of the Trinity that's revealed to us in the Scriptures. The glorious ones include the glorious doctrine of the Incarnation, the glorious humility and exaltation of our Savior in saving us. The glorious doctrine of depravity that confronts us so helpfully and exposes us for who we really are and magnifies the glory of God's grace when it comes to light in our life. The glorious ones. They do not tremble as they blaspheme and belittle the doctrines of our faith that hold so much power and so much authority over us. They are bold and they are willful. They are opponents to authority They despise authority. Look at what Peter says, though, in verse 11. He says, angels, though, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. What Peter's doing is he's highlighting this idea that they're blasphemers of authority, but those who are in authority don't treat them that way. True ministers of the gospel don't get up and belittle and throw down and blaspheme false teachers, neither would civil governments, and neither do the angels. You can think of the example, that might be confusing to you, but you might think of the example from Jude, where he paints the picture of Satan, the fallen angel, and Michael, the archangel, the good angel, fighting over the bones of Moses. And the good angel, Michael, does not blaspheme Satan when he rebukes him, but speaks to him very kindly, politely, and with respect although very boldly and very sternly, and says, the Lord rebuke you. The idea of that story is it paints a picture of character. The character of Michael is not to mistreat the wicked because they're the wicked. So pastors, thinking of the early church and how they applied this passage, men who are in authority, they don't throw down false teachers. They don't curse them. They don't belittle them in that sense. No, they expose them. They rebuke them. It's a good reminder to us. One of the reasons I had Psalm 50 read is because God brings that strong indictment to essentially what is the character of false teachers at the end of Psalm 50. And He says you love to, 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 to uh, live among thieves and adulterers are your friends and you participate in their activities and God says repent. The message of the Gospel is a message of repentance to false teachers to expose their falseness so that they might be saved it's a call 
to false gospels, false churches, false brothers and false teachers, to repent and to believe the gospel. Because God is ready to save even the false teacher. (laughs) They oppose authority. They despise authority. They are utterly wicked. They are depraved. And the message of the Word of God to the depraved, to the wicked, to those who oppose authority and despise it, is to repent and believe the gospel and be saved. We already talked about last week about the swift destruction of these people. Peter will mention it here very soon. But the message is a message of salvation. It's a message, it's a call to see yourself for who you really are and to confess it before the Lord and to beg for mercy and to rely upon His mercy that if you confess your sins to Him, He will show you mercy in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So Peter tells us that these false teachers, they are rebellious. They oppose authority. They despise authority. He goes into verse 12 and 14. They are lovers of pleasure. They're pleasure seekers. Look at verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. The picture that Peter's painting here is they are pleasure seekers. We can break this apart into about six or seven points, but follow me with, uh, with me on all of this. False teachers, first of all, he says in verse 12, are driven by instinct. These are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Peter is comparing false teachers to, uh, to animals, specifically to animals who are designed by God to be hunted, or, or, or even better, animals that God has designed to herd, like cattle. You can think of deer on a lease. What's the purpose for which a deer exists? To be hunted. Do they have any other purpose than that? (laughs) They have no other purpose than that. Not in general. This is why God has created them, but this is the picture that Peter's painting for us. We put them on our leases so that we can hunt them. That's why they exist. And what do we do? We use their instincts to lure them out and so we can find them and hunt them. Same thing with cattle. False teachers are like cattle. They live to go to the slaughterhouse. The reason why a cow exists is to eventually become a hamburger on your plate. That's why, they, that's why God put them on the earth. And we're thankful for that. But the point is, is that these creatures, they have no other purpose. They're driven in, their whole life consists of base instincts. It would be, I, to me, it seems like a miserable life, doesn't it? I don't want to be a deer and I don't want to be cattle. I'm glad I'm not. <laughs> I'm glad I'm made in the image of God. I'm glad I'm a rational creature. And more than that, a son of God by Christ Jesus. But they're made for this. They, they eat, they sleep, they have sex, and they die. That's their purpose. That's everything that they live for. And that's very good if you're a deer or a cattle. But if you're a human being like the false teachers, and what Peter is doing is comparing them to this, because that's how they live. These false teachers, they are irrational. They are unspiritual. They live by instinct. They live to eat and to sleep and to have sex 
and to eventually die. That's why they exist. And they're like the cattle. They have no sense of the greater world around them. They do not know that they're going to the slaughterhouse. They have no sense of it. They're entirely irrational, unspiritual. They're indulgers of their base instincts. And again, brothers and sisters, I just want to pause here and say, it's easy for us to talk about them like this, but this exposes who we are apart from grace. Apart from common grace, this exposes what every single one of us in this room is, has the potential for because of the sin and the depravity that's in our heart that we're responsible for before God. Left to ourselves, this is who we are. This is why we need a Savior. This is why we need grace. This is why we need mercy. They fall into the trap of their own pleasures. They're blinded by it. They're led astray into it into the slaughterhouse. They are not led by the Word of God or by the Spirit of God or even by reason. Brothers, even, even unbelievers who have a measure of common grace know how to control themselves or practice uh, deferred gratification. But these false teachers, paragons of depravity, are like irrational animals. Creatures of instinct. They're not led by reason. They're not led by the Spirit. They are led only by pleasure. This leads them to blaspheme the truth, especially the truth about sin and total depravity, to belittle it, to disregard it, to cast it aside, and the truth about self-denial and the truth about final judgment and accountability to God. Peter says their end is destruction. He's probably thinking of Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Pleasure seems so good, doesn't it? It seems so right. It feels right. But its end is the way of death for the false teacher. I'm going to move along here. False teachers are rewarded by sin. This is what he says next when he says they suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. You can see that in verse 13. The idea that Peter's communicating here is that the reward that they get for their sin is sin. That's, that's, the, that's what they work for. That's where they find their pleasure and their delight. They're pleasure seekers. Now I will mention here very briefly that there's many ways to interpret this. They suffer wrong for the wage of their wrongdoing. Isn't that an interesting expression? Peter can be very poetic sometimes. They suffer wrong for the wage of their wrongdoing. Some people say that this is the idea that God gives them over to their own sin and he gives them over to sin and to more sin. Like what, what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 where he describes the way that sin works in a person's heart and how God will... Uh, for an unrepentant sinner, God will give them over to their sin and, and to even more sin, and they'll find themselves in worse sins. And Paul uses even the same illustration there. He says God is fattening them up for the slaughter for the day of wrath. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Let's pause for a moment and just think about this. This is a sobering thought that God is willing to give people over to their sin. That for many people, there comes a point where they are unrepentant and God says... There's no more grace for you, and there will never be grace for you. I'm giving you over to yourself. I'm giving you over to your sin. 
It causes us to pause for a moment moment, and take seriously the holiness and the righteousness of God and the seriousness of sin. It causes us to pause and to consider for a moment the kindness and the severity of God. And I hope for a moment it gives us a, a little bit of trembling as we think that this really does happen to people that they harden themselves and God doesn't come to their rescue in mercy, but He justly and righteously gives them over to what they want and to their own desires. This is what Peter is saying in part. They suffer wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. These people are paragons of depravity. Some, some people say here, though, let's, let's think about this from a different angle. Some people say here, that the idea is that false teachers suffer the miseries of their own sin. In other words, they teach the people of God to, to, into sin, and then they become themselves victims of sin. And we all know, especially if we're in Christ, the miseries of sin. In fact, every one of us in this room knows something of the miseries of sin. Every drug, drug addict, if you will interview them, will tell you that they are miserable where they are in life. And yet they keep seeking the high. If you talk to a man who's caught in adultery and lives a life of adultery, talk to him. He will tell you he's miserable. He cannot find the satisfaction he thinks he'll get and that he keeps trying. And so some people come to this passage and say what Peter's bringing out here is that these false teachers, they suffer the wage of their own wrongdoing. The miseries of their sin come back upon their own head. Some say here that the idea is that false teachers simply love their sin. The wage of their wrongdoing is wrong. And the reason I bring all three of these out for you is because none of them are contradictory, are they? All all three of those are, are, are true to a sense. God gives people over to their sins. That same person that God gives over to his sin recognizes that his sin is a misery to him, and yet he can't escape it. And that same person will say, yeah, but I keep going back to the sin because I find pleasure in it and I love the pleasure that I get from it. But just for simplicity's sake, I think we can reduce what Peter is saying here for the purpose of our sermon. They love their sin. The reward of their sin is sin. Their sin begets sin and there's a sinister delight in it. They are in bondage to their sin and they love it. This is who we are. This is the way sin operates in our hearts. This is who we are apart from grace. This is who we can become if God removes His grace from us and leaves us to ourself like He did with David once, like He did with Hezekiah once, like He did with Peter once. Moving on. They're not just driven by instinct and find their reward from sin, but they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. That's what he says next. You know what revel means? It means to party. It means to indulge in merriment or boisterous festivities or luxuries. Now, of course, the Bible isn't condemning pleasure or parties or merriment. Those are all good things in their proper place. But the the, the point that Peter's making here is that these false teachers are given to it. It's, It's become their idol They do it in the open. They indulge their sin in the open. And they do it without shame. It's very much like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. Their God is their belly. That's what they live for. (laughs) 
They live for the reveling. They live for the party. They glory in their shame. They love their sin. They love their past sins. They glory about it. They boast about it. Their minds are set on earthly things. They're lovers of pleasure. They revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, Peter says next. Blots and blemishes. Now you have to put this in context of the New Testament. In the New Testament, Christ's purpose for His church is to present His church to Him without blot and without blemish. You remember Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ's purpose with His church, the reason He loves her and gives Himself for her, is so that He might sanctify her and cleanse her and make her holy and wash her with the water of the Word so that He might present His church to Himself in splendor and beauty, in grace, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In Titus chapter 2, Christ says that His purpose for the church is to purify him for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works, who are holy. But these false teachers war against Christ's purpose. They are like cancers in the body of Christ. They are like deep wounds on the body of Christ. They are like warts and moles on the face of Christ's bride. They frustrate the purpose of the gospel. They are unholy and they seek to spread their unholiness. Continuing on, moving very quickly here, they revel in their deceptions. Verse 13 again. Notice what it says there. They revel in their deceptions. The idea here is that there is a maliciousness to these false teachers. There is an intentionality to, this, to these false teachers. They do it on purpose. They teach falsehood in order to trip up people's, God's people. They're like Balaam. It's their purpose. It's their stated intention. It, they hold it in their heart. They're seeking to harm God's people by warring against Christ's purpose the holiness of His people. So they revel in these things. They're like, if we wanted to illustrate it, they're like wolves salivating over the sheep. (laughs) There's a maliciousness, there's a readiness, there's an intention here. Moving on very quickly, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. One translation says they cannot cease from sin. (laughs) Listen to how one commentary describes this and explains this. He says this, the false teachers are so addicted to sex that they look at every woman as a potential partner in their lust. And they're enslaved to this. Listen to another commentary. These people looked at every woman considering them as a potential candidate for adultery. Peter's exposing their hearts. Speaking more broadly, another commentator put it like this, these men had schooled themselves in the desire for forbidden things. They were trained in it. They had become practiced in it. It's a very hard thing to mention here, isn't it? Because it exposes our love for sin. They refused to do what Job did. Job chapter 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to gaze at a virgin. They had taken what Jesus said and twisted it into a new way to sin. But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her 
in his heart. These men have become experts at this. These men cannot stop doing it. It's constant in their heart. It's like an insatiable lust. And again, it exposes sin and the way that it works in our own hearts. The, the things that we lust and the things that we desire, how they bind us, how they hold us, how we cannot escape from them. This is who we are apart from grace. This is the sin that still wars against us if we're in Christ. And then moving on lastly here to this section, he says they entice unsteady souls. He means these teachers lure people into illicit relationships. I want you to look at a couple of passages with me. Look with me at Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. And the reason I'm, I'm making this point to you, brothers and sisters, is again because part of what Peter's doing in this passage is warning us, don't be surprised when you see this. Don't be surprised when you see it in the church. This is a real threat. You remember I started my series and I said, Peter in chapter 2 is sitting us down like children and saying, look, there are bad people on this earth. (laughs) And you have to be aware of it. We wish we could pretend that it wasn't the case. I wish I didn't have to tell you. But there are strangers and they have candy and that candy looks sweet and you've got to be careful. (laughs) So look with me at a couple of places here. Revelation 2, 14 through 15. This is Jesus speaking to one of his true churches. He says this to them, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. In other words, you have a teacher in your midst who is teaching you how to commit adultery. I don't know all that that means. I'm sure it wasn't so obvious and so blatant. But this is what was happening there in the church. But then look at chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. You're probably familiar with these passages if you've ever read the book of Revelation. But he says this, again, to one of his true churches, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. She calls herself a teacher in the church. And is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Pretty powerful message, isn't it? But it's a warning to us. Jezebels can rise up within the church. We've got to be watchful. This is the whole point of Second Peter, or one of the main points of Second Peter. Certainly the point of Second Peter chapter two. Take care, be on guard, lest you be led astray by people like this and lose your own stability. This is a reminder to us to watch our own hearts. Peter is confronting us with the harsh realities about sin. The sin that is in our heart. The sin that wars against every one of us. And the presence of sin even in the kingdom of God. 
But brothers, look with me in another passage. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. And let me just mention as you turn there that Jesus is giving even Jezebel time to repent. <laughs> and my sermon has been very heavy, so let me give, I want, what I want to do is give you some comfort. <laughs> Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9-11. through 11. As we think about depravity, as we think about the reality of it and the false teachers, as we think about what it says about our own sin... Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians. You remember how, how much the Corinthians struggled with sin. Here's what he says to them. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so, brothers, let us be thankful that this depravity that we're seeing in the false teachers Although it is true, this is who we are apart from Christ. We have been rescued from by the Spirit of Christ and by the message of the Gospel. If you've found liberty from these sins and repentance and faith in Christ, be thankful, praise the Lord. And although this sin still wars against us, brothers, in Christ we have been sanctified and justified and washed so let's get back to 2 Peter chapter 2. One more thing to say about the depravity of false teachers. They're rebellious. They oppose and despise authority. They're lovers of pleasure, especially, especially sexual immorality. They have hearts trained for greed. Look at the middle of verse 14. They have hearts trained for greed, accursed children. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but they're, they're expert self-enrichers. They love money. They love the things of this earth. And they are children of the curse. And the point that Peter is making here is the point that we've been making all sermon long. That they are models of depravity. They are paragons of depravity. They are unregenerate degenerates. They are lords of lust. They are chiefs of sinners, and they are destined for eternal fire. They are children of the curse. They are example number one of depravity and of God's justice and the coming judgment against them. And that should give us a little comfort as well, but it also should be a warning to those who are outside of Christ. And then Peter goes on to give us an example of this depravity, this rebelliousness, and this pleasure-seeking and this greed in Balaam. And we don't have a lot of time to spend with Balaam, so we're not going to spend too much time here. I'm going to say just a few things. But look at verse 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. I'm just going to say a few things here. First, the point that Peter is making is that Balaam is a great example 
of this kind of depravity. And when you have time, I encourage you, go read Numbers chapter 22 through 25 and then Numbers chapter 31 and read about Balaam. He's a prime example of this depravity. He's a prime example of a false teacher. And if you have questions about it, because that passage can be a little difficult to understand, I'd be happy to help you or one of the other pastors or teachers in our church would be happy to help you. But we could, we could summarize Balaam like this. First of all, he puts on display all of these traits, rebelliousness, pleasure-seeking, sexual immorality, and, and the whole thing, greed especially. But the thing about Balaam is that he tries to resist God. He thinks that he can get away with this. He thinks that he can, get, he can take God's blessing upon the children of Israel and turn it into a curse. And of course, in the story of Balaam, the whole point is that even his donkey knows that you can't resist the Lord, that you can't oppose him, that you can't have an intention in your heart that the Lord doesn't see and can't thwart. And this is what he means here by this speechless donkey. You'll probably remember the story of Balaam, especially if you go read it. It'll come back to you from a Sunday school or something. But God opens the mouth of his donkey. (laughs) And the donkey tells him, Balaam, what are you doing? You can't resist the Lord. Essentially, that's the way the story goes. But what I want to focus your attention on for just a moment is the very last part of verse 16. Here, Peter calls Balaam's sin madness. Look at what he says. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's Madness. Now, apart from the example of Balaam, as just an example of these false teachers, what's interesting here is that Peter calls sin madness. It's mad. It's not, and this is the point that our, Peter's been making. It's, it's not rational. It's not spiritual. It's not based on the Word of God. It's a madness. And this is doctrine for us this morning as we think about sin and we think of our own depravity and how sin works in us. You know, sin, we teach in our theology, the Bible teaches us that sin is rooted in the desires of our hearts. And oftentimes those desires come from our own imagination. And the way sin works in the life of a person is that it's not rooted in reality. It's rooted simply in our imaginations and our desires. When we sin, it's because we want something in this world to give us something it can never give. We imagine that something... Let's just take an adulterous affair. We think it can give us something. We think it can make us fulfilled. We think it can give us pleasure. We can give us joy. Lasting. We can find something that we don't have. It's an illusion. It's not real. Same thing with the drug addict. I used the illustration earlier. They think that they can get something from their drugs. Or even worse, the way sin works is that we want something that doesn't exist and become fixated on it. Let me give you an example of that. Transgenderism. The Word of God tells us, for, it tells us, it teaches, a man should not dress like a woman, a woman should not dress like a man. Transgenderism is a sin. So why do people pursue transgenderism? Why are there people in our society who want to become a different gender than they are? There's no answer to that question. Sin is a madness. 
It's because they desire something that doesn't exist that can never happen for them. <laughs> but it leads to all of these terrible behaviors where they dress up or pretend or begin to act like a member of the opposite sex. And in our society, they even go so far as to mutilate their bodies. They're grasping for something that's not real. It's madness. This is what Balaam was doing. He was trying to turn God's blessing into a curse. This is what false teachers are doing. They're trying to thwart Christ's purpose. It can't happen. This is what we all do in every sin that we commit. It's madness. It's a delusion. It's a desire not based in reality. It's a desire not submitted to the Word of God and the will of God. But this is who we are. This is who we are from birth. This is the way sin still works in us and wars against us, even in Christ Jesus, as we war with sin. But let me close up the sermon then. Brothers, don't be surprised when you see this kind of thing in the church. Peter's warning us. Christ has warned us. There will be people who will rise up among us who will be paragons of depravity, false teachers in our midst. And brothers, take care lest it happen to you. That's the message of 2 Peter. I know that sounds rough. I know that sounds harsh, but that's Peter's message to you. Again, look with me. Turn there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Now, he's talking about everything in the book, but today, knowing what we've said today, take care, be on guard, watch out that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. This is Peter being the parent. You are not exempt. The stranger can get you. The candy is enticing. This sin that these false teachers are a paragon model of still dwells within you. Watch out. So guard your own heart. Examine yourself for areas that you are vulnerable and follow the gracious message that we've heard from Psalm 50 and from Christ to the churches and that we hear from all over the Bible. Brothers, repent and flee to Christ again and ask for mercy and renew your commitment to Him in holiness. If you're outside of Christ and you're here today, this morning, this sin that we've described to these false teachers is the same sin that dwells in you. Rebellion, pleasure, and greed. That's you. And they are your masters, the Bible teaches. You're enslaved to your sin. You are enslaved to your imaginations and your desires and the idols of your heart. And the judgment and the destruction that they are headed for is the same judgment and destruction that you are headed for. You are like cattle being herded to the slaughter of your sin. But the good news today is that today is the day of salvation. The Lord God of heaven and earth and Jesus Christ, his son, commands you to repent of your sin and to believe in Him and to be saved from the dominion of sin in your life. Turn to Christ and find mercy and salvation today.